You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Stephen. How are you, Bob? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Uh, you know, fine. Holding up. That's about all a person can do. I mean, maybe we should tell people that that at the moment we are recording this, the outcome of the election is still not completely resolved, although uh, we we have our guesses about who will prevail. But um, we are taping this in, in the midst of uh, lingering election anxiety. And, but you seem pretty calm. You look calm. Which That's will right. then, it will then turn into lingering post-election anxiety. So either way, we might as well get it over with, right? We might as well and get to the subject at hand, which is not totally unrelated to the outcome of this election, um, I would say. Uh, which is this uh, book you've written. Now, Now, um, let me tell people, you're Stephen Wertheim, uh, a co-founder of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, where you hold the position of, what, Deputy Director of Research? Research and, and Policy. It's too many words. It's a we lot know of that. words. Yeah. Um, you deserve a lot of words. Uh, and, and what we're going to talk about uh, is your book, uh, Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. I love the jacket. This is actually the audiobook version, but that's what the actual book looks like, if people can see that. Uh, it's a really cool jacket. I don't know what, um, what to call that style of art that was current in the, what, 30s, 40s? Uh, the, 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 yeah, the, I, I don't quite know either, uh, but I know it's from, I looked up, so I don't design the cover. I can't take credit for the best part of the book. But I looked it up and found the original propaganda poster that it's from. Ah. Uh, and it is from the Works Progress Association in New York State. The year is not altogether clear based on the Library of Congress listing. I'm going to go with 1941 based on the message, but don't know exactly. Okay, well, for podcast listeners who aren't watching by video, you should you should Google the book if only to see the jacket. It's really cool. Tomorrow the World. No, no, no. You have to buy it after seeing the jacket. But yes, do Google the book. Uh, yeah, that was that's a one-two promotional punch. I recommend that they Google it. You recommend that they buy it. It's very subtle. Uh, so published by Harvard University Press. Congratulations on this. You are an historian by training, we should say. And this is a history. Um but it is meant to explain the predicament in which we find ourselves, which is uh, one in which the U.S. kind of assumes that its role is to dominate the globe with military force when necessary, has uh, troops stationed everywhere. How many countries do we have military bases in? I, I don't, you don't, we don't need an exact number, but I mean, it's like 150 or something, right? It's crazy. It's Something like, most like of that. The it's at least by one common count. It's more than 800 foreign military bases. It depends how you count a base, and I don't think we get uh, up to minute uh, or up to the month or year data on this yeah. either, which is its own problem. Yeah, uh, I demand a recount. The um, so you know, and in fact, the Quincy Institute. We should say. Uh, was founded in hopes of encouraging more in the way of restraint about military intervention than we have seen. Um, and this this book, as I said, is uh, is an explanation of how we got here, right? 
It is. I think that's right. How we got to a point where it's a political consensus and it remains a political consensus three decades after the Soviet Union collapsed that the United States has to ring the globe with its armed force, maintain overwhelming military dominance compared to any combination of rivals if you look at our military spending. Uh, and yet there is little shared purpose for American power. Just look at our political debate right now. So how do we get to that paradoxical situation, a, a seemingly immovable commitment to military primacy, and yet does anyone think that the current president has a, a, a strategy to use this power, uh, a plan to achieve peace? So, so both parties agree that we, we have to have this, we have to maintain this massive military presence around the world. It, but but uh, they don't agree on exactly what we should do with it. And it's not clear that either of them has a truly coherent idea of their own about what we should do with it. That's right. And I think, so we're starting, I guess, with the ultimate implications of the book first. Right. We can work backwards. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that um, the purpose, the original purpose for U.S. military dominance is not applicable to the world that we've lived in for the last three decades. Okay. Uh, we can argue about whether it was good or bad prior to that, but there was a theory of the case forged in the early years of World War II that the United States had to be the dominant power in order to keep totalitarian conquerors from attaining a preponderance of power in Europe and Asia. Uh, and that theory of the case underpinned U.S. global leadership or armed dominance for, you know, many decades. And as long as the Axis powers were there or then Soviet-backed communism, there was a coherent rationale for U.S. armed dominance. Again, not to say that it's good or bad. As a historian, at least, that's not my, that's not my role in the first instance. But since then, you know, where are the totalitarian conquerors who could possibly attain dominance across Europe and Asia? Uh, and yet this role for the United States goes on. Okay, so, so the book spends a lot of time on the, the World War II period as a kind of a pivotal period. Um, and others have cast it as a pivotal period. I think you're 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 telling us somewhat different story than some of the people who also cast it as a pivotal period. In other words, it is it is pretty pretty clear that we were less militarily involved in the world before World War II than we were after World War II and have been since. But you you have a, a different telling of this story that sheds kind of new light on you know terms like internationalism, isolationism. What, what they actually meant uh, before World War II and, and just how exactly, what the driving forces actually were behind the, the kind of pivot in, in the U.S. role in the world. So, and, and there's, you know, really, uh, I mean, there's a whole story I wasn't really aware of about this, this, uh, this whole systematic planning for the post 
war period that began very early uh, before we were in the war and itself kind of evolved, right? Like uh, before, before a kind of elite consensus of sorts was reached by the end of the war about where we should head. Uh, you also have an interesting story about the United Nations, what the original idea was. So I want to get into all this stuff. Why don't you start by preparing the ground and, and talking about kind of the state of play before World War II, the, the United States kind of conception of itself or different, you know, American conceptions of what its role should be like after World War I. So the traditional way in which Americans tell ourselves the story is that after World War I, the United States decided to return to normalcy, meaning to return to isolationism. It decided that involvement in World War I was a mistake. It didn't want to get involved in the League of Nations organization that President Woodrow Wilson put forward. And then it spent the interwar years as an isolationist power. The grain of truth in that narrative is that the United States did indeed uh, want to avoid military entanglements in Europe and most of Asia in that period. And that was one of the foundational foreign policy beliefs uh, for American political leaders, regardless of party, going back to the founding when uh, George Washington famously warned in his farewell address that the United States should steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world. So that's the grain of truth. There's a non-entanglement tradition what that narrative gets dead wrong is that we should conceptualize that tradition as a kind of isolationism. This is just on a historical level anachronistic because the term isolationism, the ism doesn't start to be used by anybody even as an epithet until the 1930s and forties. And we'll get into why. So nobody thought it was useful to call themselves isolationists or others throughout most of American history. And the reason is uh, the way most Americans understood um, America's role in the world was they wanted to balance nationalism with internationalism. So rather than see some kind of choice between isolationism and internationalism, The question for most people was what kind of American engagement in the world should there be consistent with this non-entanglement tradition? How do we balance a healthy American nationalism with a healthy American internationalism? That's the way, you know, a number of people, including Theodore Roosevelt, put it. Uh, And so internationalists, you know, ask the question, how should the United States try to engage in the world to overcome power politics uh, through, you know, peaceful intercourse, trade, law, arbitration, et cetera. By overcoming power politics, you mean um, military, uh, the the use of military force by countries. I mean, that was seen as kind of a disruptor of a potentially peaceful world that would be ripe for American commerce, right? That's right. That's right. So, you know, uh, take another founder, Thomas Jefferson says, you know, he wants, uh, you know, uh, war with none, but commerce with all. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's a kind of traditional view, if you want to call it classical liberal, maybe that's true, uh, that, uh, you know, peaceful engagement, everyone's for that, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you're a strong believer, you might even believe that one day peaceful forms of interaction can express the true will of people and express a real harmony that exists in the world and there will be no more need to resort to war. If you're a really strong internationalist, in fact, that that term was first used by pacifists uh, uh, in the late 19th century. So if you're a really strong internationalist of that bent, that's probably your core belief. Some of the more um, prominent American leaders also started to call themselves internationalists by the turn of the century. I mentioned Theodore Roosevelt, and, you know, he was a more belligerent person, but still believed that, um, you know, either the United States should stay out of uh, armed commitments uh, in Europe and Asia, or it should work in ways that would uh, change the nature of uh, the alliance system in in Europe to make it more peaceful. Okay, so... A common thing uh, in right now in the modern world, it seems to me, is for people who oppose military intervention to be called isolationists by people who consider themselves internationalists. And the isolationists often reply, wait a second, I'm not an isolationist. I do believe in commercial engagement with the world and so on, and maybe even in involvement in multilateral bodies and stuff, but certainly commercial engagement with the world. And one thing you're saying is, I mean, not only would you agree with the isolationists there, but you're saying it, there was a time when that's what internationalism meant, right? What, 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 is, what is considered isolationism today, which is to say, I favor all kinds of engagement with the world, except for, <laughs> except for the ones involving our, our military. Um, there was a time when that was... That was internationalism. Yeah, this concept has been turned on its head. And the most stark way to see this historically is to look at the status of pacifists. Pacifists were once the quintessential internationalists. The American Peace Society, people involved with them, many of them Quakers, you know, pioneered this uh, internationalist agenda. Then it moved more into the mainstream, And then you got people saying, you know, yes, I'm for internationalism, but there should be a robust nationalism alongside of it. Um, And then in the pivotal moment that my book focuses on, uh, when the decision for American primacy was made in 1940 and 41, you can see pacifists turn into the quintessential isolationists. And the internationalists become those who believe that the United States should use force in principle on a global scale because the United States had to enforce world order and be the dominant power. So it's through this, um, that's actually how I kind of came to this project was I'm a uh, intellectual historian uh, as much as anything by training. And so I started to notice as I was working on earlier periods before World War II, hey, nobody, nobody at the time uh, is using this vocabulary of isolationism. It just doesn't exist. So I got interested in when did it start to be used and what explains that 
uh, what were the transformation? And then I kind of got further into it uh, and uh, found out that the real story here was how the United States uh, made a decision to become the armed superpower uh, at a particular point in time. And it's out of that uh, shift that the entire vocabulary of how we you know, talk about America's role in the world uh, was reconfigured. Okay. So this the story, a, a, a big part of the story begins when at the very beginning of World War II, uh, the Roosevelt administration is approached by, I guess, a, a bunch of, uh, you know, foreign policy types, some of them from New York, uh, in particular, the Council on Foreign Relations, about planning for the post-war world, right? Now, what, 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 would, the, uh, what would the Council on Foreign Relations have kind of stood for then? Was it, I mean, who were these people at that time? Did they have a coherent ideology or were they just genuinely people who like to discuss foreign relations or what? <laughs> you know, kind of like today, they were experts who might move in and out of government. Uh, one of the people who went down to Washington to meet with the State Department to offer the services of the council was Hamilton Fish Armstrong, who's the longtime editor of Foreign Affairs, a journal that still exists. I think the main difference from today is that, uh, yes, they would have identified as internationalists, but uh, the Council on Foreign Relations was set up in the wake of World War I. And at that time, as I said, nobody really thought that their job was to um, combat isolationism or that isolationism existed in the United States. So they subscribed to, they did not subscribe initially uh, and this is true when the war breaks out, to the view that the United States should become the dominant military power in the world. In fact, when uh, the Council on Foreign Relations uh, ended up getting Rockefeller Foundation money to assemble this uh, group of post-war planners who were drawn from you know, business, academia, some from the government, from the military. So again, similar to the kind of composition of the foreign policy elite today, um, but when they set about to do their planning work in the opening months of the war in Europe, they took it for granted that, of course, the United States would not and should not emerge anytime soon as either a belligerent in the war in Europe uh, or, you know, a, a power generally projecting its military strength uh, into the, the old world. So there was a more um, eclectic range of views uh, you know, still a commitment to American engagement in the world. You might say that um, there was an expression of, you know, the interests of business and capital in the mix and the professional class. A lot of the sociological foundations were the same, but the views really did shift. Okay, so the agenda, uh, the kind of consensus that emerged from this this group and ensuing conversations, the consensus that had emerged by the end of the war was not the agenda of the group going into the effort at the beginning of the war, except to the extent that maybe they would like, they would like to make the world safe for American commerce. That's probably a unifying thread throughout. This was backed by some moneyed interests, I guess. I mean, Carnegie money, Rockefeller money, although I don't, I don't know to what extent, you know, these foundations, the, the philanthropic legacies of these 
rich people tend to eventually get divorced from the original aspirations of the rich people. So I don't know what we can infer from the fact that, um, you know, there are famous rich families associated with this. But but still, it's a, it's fair to say that if there was if, if there was something that persisted from the beginning to the end of this conversation throughout the war, that was one assumption, right? We, we want American commerce to be safe in the coming world. Absolutely true, yes. Uh, but, you know, the United States had been, by some measures, the number one economy in size in the world since the 1870s. So for many decades leading up to this point, the United States had had economic superiority, but very few people thought that economic superiority required American military superiority to back it up. Okay, so um, why don't you give us a sense for the diversity of thought that was encompassed by this project initially, like some of the, some of the different ideas that were floating around uh, in, in the first couple of years of this of the conversation that was kind of started by by CFR and then did take place under the auspices of the government with this philanthropic backing. That's right. So it's a, you know, it's a convenient set of people. Um, I don't want to make too much of them in a way, because um, I don't think that their actual influence was was too singular. Uh, I think they're a really good site to look at to see where the American elite in general, how their views change. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just want to warn against that in addition to the kind of conspiratorial view that, you know, the interests of capital were kind of scheming to make the United States number one from the outset. I also think that's that's an interpretation that exists in some literature, and I don't have the same view. Be- and here's the reason why. Uh, in the period of the phony war in Europe... Uh, remind us from, what the phony war is. Yeah, it was... Uh, I think it was named that by um, William Bora, the senator, the anti-interventionist senator. Uh, it was a period of stalemate in Europe. The war was declared uh, toward the end of 1939, but it seemed like a repeat of World War I when, you know, in a certain sense, not much happened in terms of territorial conquest until very late in the war. And so the planners got together and figured this will be something of a repeat um, of World War I. And so what's remarkable is um, the schemes that they were thinking of in this early period bear so little resemblance to what they were doing uh, in 12 months time or six months time. Uh, You know, Alan Dulles and Hanson Baldwin chaired uh, an armaments group, one of four main groups of the CFR planners. Alan Dulles, the future CIA director. Hanson Baldwin was a New York Times military analyst. Uh, And they sent a memo in, I think it was dated May 1st to the State Department, the month that uh, the Nazis would go on to invade France. And this memo was a catalog of disarmament proposals in the world that went back from the ancient Greeks who had prohibited poisoning wells to Winston Churchill, who in 1913 uh, had proposed a one-year holiday on naval building. This is what they thought it was relevant to send to the State Department uh, at at the very end of of the opening phase 
of the war in Europe. And so there was a kind of expression of, you might say, traditional American nationalism and internationalism. Let's do as much business with the world as possible with as little military commitment as possible when it comes to Europe and Asia. In the new world of the Americas, it's a different story. The United States was always very expansionist in military and territorial terms there. Um, but with respect to Europe in particular, uh, it was obvious to all, basically all of these people that the United States was not going to make uh, and should not make uh, many commitments beyond the hemisphere. In fact, some of them were worried at, at different phases of uh, uh, early 1940 that the real danger might lie in a rapid victory by uh, the British and the French, and then the, they, those two empires could team up and exclude the United States from trading arrangements. And so, you know, the, I guess the major American diplomatic initiative that took place at this time was uh, to send the Undersecretary of State Sumner Wells, FDR's man in the State Department, to Europe, uh, where he went around to various capitals and tried to um, bring Mussolini to the side of the democracies and find a way to mediate a settlement in Europe. So uh, it's a kind of continuation of um, uh, America's non-entanglement tradition, but a tradition with internationalism and engagement. And that is really shattered by the fall of France in May and June. Right, which happens so fast it shocks everyone. And suddenly they're starting to imagine a Europe dominated by Germany, even controlled by Germany, and asking themselves what America's role would be in that, in that world. That's right. And even worse, because the Nazis steamrolled France so quickly, um, most observers around the world conclude that Hitler has solved the riddle of offensive warfare. Now he will uh, conquer Britain. And then maybe the British fleet goes to him. Maybe the, what happens to the British Empire? So for you know a, a substantial uh, period of months, not a whole lot of time, but enough to you know take things really seriously, uh, American observers have to ask themselves: What would it mean to live in that kind of a world where the Nazis, who were then joined in the formal tripartite pact? with Italy and Japan, what would it mean to live in uh, a, a world with a Nazi-dominated Europe? And was the idea that such a Germany could conceivably even pose an offensive threat in the Western Hemisphere? Yes and no. Many did conjure scenarios where Germany could... Um, subvert Latin American countries and then kind of make its way toward North America. But most observers uh, acknowledged that the United States was never in danger of being invaded successfully by the Nazis or Japan uh, anytime soon. And there was, you know, universal agreement in the United States uh, by the fall of 1940 that the United States should defend its traditional Western hemisphere domain 
which is to say the entire Western Hemisphere. And uh, the argument was generally acknowledged by both sides in the debate that as long as the United States denied to any outside conqueror any territory in the Americas, the United States itself could not successfully be invaded because of how difficult it would be to mount an invasion across the oceans. And even as uh, uh, it seemed so menacing initially uh, when Hitler turned his Luftwaffe on Britain, as Britain held on, uh, there was an argument to say, yes, look at what the English Channel can do if the channel can thwart uh, an, an invasion attempt by the Nazis, you know, the Atlantic Ocean does a lot more than that. Uh, and so I think what's, what was motivating um, people on both sides uh, of the debate about, you know, both getting into the war and what the United States should do post-war was not a fear of an armed attack um, by by the Nazis in any, you know, concrete way. Okay. So then how did exactly concerns about America's role in, 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 in a post-war world where maybe, maybe Germany would be dominant and, and in some sense menacing, how did that translate into the new view of, Amer- of the role of, of America in the world and the American military in the world? What was kind of the logic? So for the officials and intellectuals who end up making a decision for dominance, they view the fall of France as decisive evidence that the old kind of internationalism failed. The old kind of internationalism had promised that, you know, through peaceful means, the world could... um, transcend its condition of constant war until that point, the United States should stay out of systems of alliances and warfare. And when Hitler threatens to become the master of Europe, they're faced with a choice as they see it. Do we want most of the world or the most powerful parts of the world, Europe and Asia to go under to potentially to totalitarian powers who would deny us the ability to have intercourse uh, on basically liberal terms, to trade, et cetera, um, or not. And if, if not, we will have to abandon our traditional aversion to armed entanglements, since in this world with expansive totalitarian powers who are incompatible with our whole way of life, um, whoever has the military strength uh, to enforce its terms of relations uh, will define the future. So now the United States, to to get part of what it wanted before, uh, a world that was basically liberal and in which the United States had uh, significant influence it would have to abandon its old tradition of avoiding entanglements or trying to transcend power politics. So that's, I think, the logic that 
the people in the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, FDR, uh, and essentially most of the foreign policymaking class. That's what they come to. On the other hand, there's a still robust, less powerful, but robust coalition of people at the same time who say, no, let's keep and make a different choice. Let's keep the non-entanglement tradition. That worked. In fact, that's strengthened by uh, new advances like uh, the advent of air power, which really helps against an invasion across water. Um, let's keep that tradition, preserve the new, defend the entire Western hemisphere, preserve freedom in the Western hemisphere. And, you know, Europe has often had these squabbles. We're seeing another, uh, uh, you know, particularly noxious example of that, but things will may, may change there. And in any case, the United States can preserve in the new world, its security, its freedom and its prosperity. Okay. And so it's kind of around now that the adherents of what would become the dominant view uh, start stigmatizing the dissenters as isolationists and kind of invent the term for purposes of stigmatization almost. Yeah. Um, again, I don't take a kind of conspiratorial view. Mm-hmm. I think that the people who started to call their opponents isolationists were they believed what they were saying. They, they believed that the kind of logical implication of a United States that did not enforce its terms in the world would be isolation. It would restrict um, American intercourse over time. Now, they equated isolation with dominance in an entire hemisphere of the world, the Western Hemisphere, I find that hard to, you know, defend on intellectual grounds, but that's how they, that's how they viewed things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that they were sincere in doing that. But yes, through the 1930s, the term isolationism started to be used at the same time as totalitarian powers uh, arose and, and made a challenge to the democracies uh, in terms of which system represented the wave of the future. So the term was not invented, you know, just on a dime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it it gets used actually more and more uh, throughout World War II, even as those who are arguing against U.S. participation in the war uh, essentially dwindle to zero after after the United States entered the war uh, following the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So that tells us something in- curious is is going on. I think. Okay. So the people wielding the term isolationism were probably sincere in their belief that it was naive to think uh, you could, uh, without some use of military force, uh, avoid uh, a fate of, of kind of de facto American isolation or something just too close to that for comfort. And they, they, and they probably sincerely believe that. Now, the most famous isolate, so-called isolationists are, of course, you know, the American Firsters, uh, I guess, was it the American First Committee? Right. Uh, and I guess Lindbergh is most uh, famously associated with that group, although there are no, uh, other prominent names. Was Norman Thomas uh, an American first, sir? Yeah, um, a, a self-identified democratic socialist, Norman Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Sears Roebuck executive was high up in America first. It was a diverse coalition, as had been non-intervention and anti-imperialist movements uh, dating back to 1898, um, it was a you know 
span the ideological gamut. And on the other side, the position that favored uh, immediate U.S. entry into the war uh, and U.S. post-war leadership was also diverse ideologically. So that's why you get, you know, uh, an anti-New Dealer like publishing mogul Henry Luce writing the American Century essay in February of 1941 and very much supporting uh, FDR when it came to uh, uh, foreign policy. Yeah, the... um... Uh, So, um, let's see, where was I before my my phone began ringing? Um, so the so the American Firsters was still in the conversation after the fall of France, or by the by the time by Pearl Harbor, by America's entry into the war, it was it was the conversation was pretty much over. Definitely by Pearl Harbor, uh, the American First Committee itself disbanded, and uh, those who had uh, attached itself to America First, you know, essentially fully got behind the American war effort and more or less behind U.S. Uh, post-war leadership as well. Um, but I would even say that, you know, it's not like it was a fair fight at the outset. And sometimes when this is narrated, it, it there's a kind of inflation of the power of, of the America First Committee. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the uh, more interventionist uh, group the a Committee for uh, the Defense of America by Aiding the Allies uh, got together first. Uh, it also spun off into a more robust group called Fight for Freedom in 1941. Uh, and by the Lend-Lease Act, uh, which Congress approved in February and March of 1941, it was pretty clear that um, the America First group was not... Um, that popular. Uh, in fact, if you go back to uh, September of 1940, public opinion polls showed that most of the public, by a significant margin, preferred the United States uh, to uh, uh, enter the war if it was necessary to prevent an Axis victory than to stay out of war. Very few Americans, to be clear, wanted the United States to intervene in the war at this point. But, you know, I think that's a revealing question because it shows that the priority was, there was a a recognition that uh, the balance of power in Europe fundamentally mattered to the United States. And so the America First Committee, I think, was always fighting something of an uphill battle, even if it had, you know, some valid geopolitical arguments to make, at least on its own, on its own terms. Okay. So, um... You're, I mean, to the extent that you are suggesting that alternative paths were possible for America and might have led to a different world than the one we have today, your point isn't we could have avoided involvement in World War II. I think your point is that could have happened and you still could have chosen a different post-war path, right? That's right. Uh, So I guess, guess you know, yeah. yeah, Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it it didn't need to be the case that uh, entering into World War II to defeat the Axis powers implied that the United States should be the dominant armed power well beyond that, 
or even perpetually. And yet that was the, the thing that really interested me is that uh, in the wake of the fall of France, it wasn't just that some people wanted to get in the war. Okay, it's that there was a really conscious effort to, to say, aha, these events have shown that the entire nature of world politics is different from what we thought. And America now has to play a new role in general. That's why Henry Luce writes The American Century. It's not just about, you know, defeating this enemy because it's a grave threat or a threat to Western civilization or what have you. Uh, it is a long-term project that is conceived, you know, in tandem with uh, the U.S. preparing to, to enter the war. Yeah, and for people who don't know, I don't know if you mentioned this, but Henry Luce was the co-founder of Time Magazine. At that point, he was running Time Magazine and exerted s significant influence that way. Time and, and Life Magazine, and, and in fact... Um, was that was his essay on the American century published in Life magazine? Yeah, it was in Life magazine. Uh -huh. I think it was the top circulating uh, magazine in the United States at that time. So it helps if you're a if you're the publisher of a magazine, and helps if you can just place your own item. You don't have to write somebody with a you know a, a pitch and all that stuff. Yeah, it's a real time saver when you own your own. When you own. I publish a newsletter, by the way, same logic, but somewhat less influence, perhaps. <laughs> Um, the uh, and then you know other eminent figures of that era. Walter Lippmann was pretty much on board with the loose vision and became a, uh, a progenitor of it. Um, and so, okay, so if I guess, uh, well, maybe you should flesh out a. Do you think you've said enough about the vision that had taken shape? by the end of the war that uh, that could have been otherwise. Um, anything else you want to say about that before we get into kind of, well, other factors like, you know, what effect, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the so-called Iron Curtain uh, would have and and so on and the UN. Is, is there any, any anything else you want to say about just the, the, the extent to which a vision had coalesced by the end of World War II and what the vision was? Yeah, I mean, we often, um, in the foreign policy world, there, there are all these calls to return to the good American leadership of 1945. We see this in our own moment where, you know, Donald Trump, for example, holds up uh, General Patton and MacArthur. Uh, and says we need to go back to that, his own reading of, of, of what that moment was, right? Mm -hmm. Toughness, martial glory, and victory. On the other hand, um, uh, Joe Biden and, and other foreign policy experts more aligned with him uh, have spent most of the Trump years calling for a return to the liberal international order, uh, founded so-called uh, approximately 1945. And my reading of that moment is different. Yes, the United Nations was created, but it was created um, by American policymakers largely because they were looking for a way to project American power in the post-war world. They were um, concerned first and foremost with the opposition that might come 
from the American public, which they read as isolationist and the grain of truth in that again being that there was a genuine non-entanglement tradition. Uh, and so they launched this campaign, uh, many elites with some State Department coordination launched a campaign in the later days of the war to uh, rally the public around participation in the United Nations organization and warn against um, a reversion to isolationism, even as there were very few people who could even plausibly be pointed to as isolationists at that time. And there were only two votes against joining the UN in the Senate. So it wasn't a controversial proposition. Uh, and so, you know, I think there's an impulse to kind of go back to the glorious moment of victory in World War II and say, let's go back, let's return to that, this kind of moment that has refounded the modern United States. Um, but, you know, how multilateral was that moment? I think not very much if you look under the hood. I mean, some of the people uh, in the United States who uh, were architects of the UN were also saying to themselves, well, you know, if we don't get Security Council support and we really want to do something, then, you know, we could always just do it. There's also the fact that, I mean, if you, if you look at the five permanent members of the Security Council, us and four others, all of whom had veto power, we were on better terms with some of them than we later came to be, right? I mean, we had, we had just been allies with the Soviet Union in a war. Um, China, uh, uh, at that point, referred to a, a Chinese government that, that we were uh, very much allied with. So was there also, I mean, I'm curious about this, was there also the, anti the anticipation that actually we didn't have to worry about the veto because these people were all our friends? Or was it more like what you just said, like, in the end, uh, we, we, we'll, we'll just ignore the UN when it's convenient? Or... A little bit of both, I think. Yeah. But um, there wasn't a, an expectation that the great powers in the security account, I mean, China wasn't a great power at that time. So the four great powers would get along and cooperate in this kind of common project of post-war policing. Mm -hmm. So that's true. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, there was very little that the UN required the United States to do. I mean, the big sticking point over the League of Nations had been in a way that the League of Nations was too robust because it seemed to require states to go to war uh, on in the defense of another, if another state was attacked. The UN doesn't have that guarantee. And so it didn't really seem to commit the United States to anything in particular, except what the representative of the president sitting in the UN council uh, wanted to do. Because there is an irony here, which is that as time wore on, the UN Security Council became more of a potential constraint on American power. I guess for two reasons. I mean, one is that uh, something that maybe hadn't been envisioned so much right at the end of World War II started happening, which is that we wanted to sometimes 
invade countries. <laughs> I, I doubt we, we kind of imagined ourselves doing a lot of that at the end of World War II. And then the other thing is, as I said, we were less and less on reliably good terms with members of the Security Council that had a veto. So when it came time to invade, for example, Iraq in 2003, the Bush administration was hoping to get Security Council authorization. Turned out they couldn't even get France to go along. So they wound up uh, doing the war without that uh, support, th that authorization. And the Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, later said this was a flatly illegal invasion. And I, I just can't you know, I'm, I'm something of a champion of the UN, partly because if we took it more seriously, we'd invade fewer countries. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's just kind of an irony in the way the whole thing is developed, right? That was not anticipated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, and I, I feel the same way. I, I am favorably disposed to the UN, even though uh, the UN, I, I give a kind of dark reading of the UN in the book. I don't the think original, that means... the original motivation. It, it was more correct, uh, more cynical in the in in its conception than is appreciated. You think? Yes, I think so. Um, and you're right, kind of because um, because there wasn't such a concern um, about how the UN might constrain the United States. Perhaps that allowed some of the mechanisms that were put forward to have. Uh, more of a constraining effect in the future. We should also add to that the expansion of the General Assembly through decolonization, uh, also really uh, turn the United States against the UN. But um, to go back to your uh, specific uh, case of the war in Iraq, uh, you know, you could also see it um, the other way in the sense that, yes, the United Nations... Um, had the United States followed the UN Charter and also just accepted uh, a veto, uh, it would not have invaded Iraq, would have been much better. Uh, on the other hand, two, two, two things. The UN system might have helped um, legitimate American power in this case. The fact that the Bush administration went there. It actually tried to claim that it had a certain amount of authorization from the Security Council and that it was enforcing mm -hmm. uh, Security Council resolutions about weapons of mass destruction on, on Saddam Hussein. So it still tried to appeal, despite its other countervailing actions and unilateralist uh, pronouncements, it still tried to claim that there was a kind of UN and international warrant for its actions. In addition to that, much of the most politically salient um, opposition, as it were, to the Iraq War in 2002 and three, took the form not of the war is wrong, but we should go through the UN, give the weapons inspectors more time, and we should follow, as John Kerry put it, you know, it, it, our action should pass the global test. We should follow what the UN said. So I wonder, you know, had there not been this structure there, might there have been more people saying, this is just a bad idea, this war, mm -hmm. fundamentally. It's not going to serve U.S. security interests. Uh, it's not going to turn out well. It's going to be really bad for the region. Um, I don't know. But even that case, which I'm basically with you uh, on that case, suggests that there's still some power of the architects of the UN 
who saw that by having something there, even if it didn't really require all that much and the U.S. had a veto and so forth, by having something there, it, it provided uh, a, a resources by which the United States could justify the use of power. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, I don't remember the history that clearly, but I think had it not been for uh, the earlier Security Council resolution, probably Iraq would not have opened up to the inspectors. And, 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 if, and if, uh, man, I don't know if I'm right about it, but, if, but in any event, if the Bush administration had had the wisdom to just let the inspectors do their work, it would have discovered that there was actually no good reason to invade. But we digress, I guess. Um, the, uh, I mean, there's one other irony, it seems to me, um, like the, uh, I mean, the original idea, as it was in some sense, as you s- said, to make the world safe for capitalism, uh, for American capitalism, the original, you know, part of the original impetus for this whole rethinking of America's role in the world. And yet, as over the last couple of decades, looking at how we actually have intervened militarily and seemed by my lights to be one of the main sources of instability in the world, and you could even include Vietnam in this, I think, um, I thought, wow, I wish uh, I wish capitalism was running the show. I mean, I wish I wish they would just do a good job of making the world safe for capitalism. Surely, right. I mean, the only yeah. the only part of capitalism that benefits from this is the arms manufacturers. I right. would be happy if capitalism exerted its influence so systematically that it created a stable world. A lot fewer people yeah. would die, and we could sell them shit. You know, that would be okay. But so, yeah, I mean, you know, I I think. Um, in the middle of the 20th century, there was a, you know, powerful argument for why uh, the robust projection of U.S. military power could serve the interests of global capitalism, namely when there was a real uh, dynamic competitor to capitalism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, the Marshall Plan and the other Cold War policies that went along with it um, are you know you could you could oppose them maybe on capitalist terms, but you could certainly support them on capitalist terms. But I think we've lost the plot in that regard, uh, certainly since the collapse of the Soviet Union. I, I don't you know, uh, I mean you know one powerful argument in favor well one argument that people think has power in favor of U.S. Uh, military hegemony is that it uh, undergirds a larger system including uh, economic exchange. Uh, But it's really hard for me to actually see how that concretely is the case. And in economic terms, let's put aside even the the costs and disruption, instability, devastation of wars that we've waged. Um, Just look at our sanctions policies, which forbid us and others from doing business against dozens of countries that has economic costs yeah and it's interesting there that it seems to me the one case i can think of recently when a sanctions regime was effective uh you know instrumentally and arguably uh you know was even a good idea was the Iran nuclear deal, and that was mediated by the United Nations if when then when you look at all the unilateral sanctions uh you know, um, Venezuela, Syria, um, and, the, and the Trump era 
unilateral sanctions against Iran, uh, they they seem to me to have been uh, less less obviously uh, successful, and in fact, so far as I can tell, quite quite the opposite. They 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 lead to a lot of suffering and and don't don't get the job that they were supposedly designed to do done. So um, if, if so so you you have this argument about how at this pivotal time we were put on this track that got us where we are today. Um, I suppose uh, counter arguments would emphasize contingency more and say, well, actually, but for this or that, this happened since World War II, things might have been very, very different. This wasn't a decisive path we were put on. And, and I'm sure one thing people would bring up is the Cold War, it, uh, uh, particularly people who think that, that the Cold War was partly the result of our own miscalculation or maybe the result of both sides misreading each other's intentions or whatever. But they might say, well, a lot of the extension of American force in recent uh, world in the post-war era was nominally motivated by Cold War logic. And had we not come to see ourselves in a battle for global dominance with communism, things might have been different. What, what's your reaction to that? Maybe, but we have to explain the Cold War in the first place, too. So what does the Soviet Union threaten? as of 1947, which is the best date, if you want to pick one, for when the Cold War be began. Did it threaten, you know, the United States with invasion? No. Uh, did it really threaten American prosperity? No. It threatened, as the people who were concerned about it said, uh, to engage in armed conquest, subversion, and become the dominant actor in Europe and potentially beyond. That's what they thought was bad enough in its own terms. And that argument is rooted in the, in the uh, conceptualization that we've been talking about that comes from 1940 and 41. And in fact, in 1940 and 41, that was really the first Cold War because before the United States was in uh, World War II, uh, it imagined that it might well go on serving as the arsenal of democracy without being a formal belligerent. And, and you know, the, the Germans might be in charge of Europe for a very long time. And there would be, a, an, you know, two armed camps in the world engaging in, you know, hostile actions short of outright belligerence. Uh, so that was very similar to the way the Cold War was imagined and played out. Uh, and that's why uh, groups like uh, the Free World Association have their origin in 1941. So those concepts, those Cold War concepts, had already developed uh, against the Axis powers and then were applied to the Soviet Union in the late 1940s. So I'm not sure we get a Cold War without this other history uh, that that I've been describing. Now, on the other hand, you know, did did the U.S. coming out of 1945? It had a one-world vision. It wanted to get along with the Soviet Union. There's no question about that. Um, but I still, and you know, so perhaps the Cold War, if Henry Wallace had been in charge, right, um, would have been avoided. There still would have been robust competition between the capitalist world and the communist world, and between the United States and the other great powers, including and especially the Soviet Union, it might have been less hostile 
than what the Cold War amounted to. But I still think there wouldn't have been, I think the ship had sailed in terms of the question of how the United States defined its vital interests in the world. The United States made a decision by that point uh, that its vital interests would be imperiled uh, if a hostile power established a preponderance of power in Europe and Asia. And so it had to be a goal of the United States to prevent that eventuality from happening. So that could have continued potentially without an outright ideologized Cold War. Um, but I'm not sure where, you know, what would have been different uh, coming into today, uh, even if that were the case. Certainly fewer interventions like uh, Korea and, and Vietnam. Okay. And Henry Wallace, we should say, was, among other things, he was editor of the New Republic for a while. Was he a vice presidential candidate or was he actually vice president for a while or what? What was Henry Wallace? Um, he was vice president. Yeah. Uh, and he actually plays a, a surprising role in my account because he was very much enthusiastic about the U.S. teaming up with the British Empire in 1941 to police the post-war world. And he holds a number of meetings with the planners in the Council on Foreign Relations and envisions the, uh, himself as being the head of a future post-war planning group. He didn't win that bureaucratic fight. So that's uh, a little bit hard to reconcile at first blush with his subsequent opposition to the Cold War when it breaks out. Yeah, one of the interesting things about the book is when you look at the diversity of like weird ideas that were floating around early in the war. I mean, you know, one, as you said, was like Anglo, frankly, Anglo-American dominance, like that, a frankly, kind of almost ethnic hegemony. Um, and, then, and then there were these visionary things. I kind of think maybe Wallace was on board for this, uh, with this for a while, but it was uh, the idea of some kind of world air force that would impose uh the peace like it, it would be uh it would have been under the auspices of the un i guess as things evolved but th that was it that was being floated by people right yeah at first there was an idea for a, a a sort of elite um air force um it was modeled in part on how the british had um you know, bombed uh nominally independent interwar iraq from the skies um, and elsewhere in the British Empire. And initially in 1941, it was an ex would, would be an exclusively American-British affair and that it expanded. And there were some attempts actually early on in the life of the UN to, to create a more robust UN military force that, that didn't come to pass. Okay, so one other kind of um, counter argument, your argument might get, is not one that emphasizes contingency, but one that emphasizes more an inevitability, which is the idea, and I guess you'd hear some realists say this, that look, great powers wind up exerting force to whatever extent they can. And if they're great economic powers, they can exert it far and wide. The U.S. was capable of doing it globally. You can predict that it's going to do it. Your book does a great job of being a case study in how in one particular case, the U.S. in mid 20th century reached the consensus that was inevitable, but that's just the way these things always go. What's your What's your view on that? Well, I think if if that's your view, you have to at least say that at some point, actual actors in the world have to decide that this is what they're going to do. And so I guess my book becomes for, for you uh, an empirical unfolding of events that were 
inevitable. But I don't really buy that view. I mean, the United States could have decided to um, project its power more robustly much earlier, coming out of World War I, for example. Instead, uh, you know, it declared a return to normalcy. And um, in fact, world, the World War I experience, especially by the Great Depression, um, made Americans um, more reluctant to get involved in, in World War II. And, you know, you can see that in the way, I mean, it was just inconceivable to Americans um, at the outbreak of the war that they would go on to play the kind of role in the world that they did. So was everybody, all these smart people, were they all wrong? Did they not understand something? Or was there real contingency there? Uh, and we know from the fact that, you know, there were um, people in real time laying out plausible paths as consistent with American nationalism and American internationalism as anything else, uh, plausible paths that the United States might have taken had the configuration of power gone differently. Okay. And finally, in terms of uh, objections to your thesis, there are people who would emphasize contingency uh, of a more recent uh, vintage than the, the origins of the Cold War, uh, like, for example, 9-11. You talk about the, in the book about George W. Bush, and indeed, you know, it kind of, at one level, it sounds like he was entering his presidency uh, planning to adopt a humble profile in the world. He talked about some of that explicitly. So I guess some people would argue, well, you know, had uh, had 9-11 not happened, um, we'd be in a different place and, 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 and the forever wars wouldn't be wars. Um, what, what do you say about that? Almost every president in my lifetime uh, has run on a kind of more humble approach to the world, um, you know, we'll, we'll have a less costly foreign policy, but we'll get greater benefit. George W. Bush did that, you know, Hillary, uh, uh, Bill Clinton ran on a peace dividend after the Cold War. We can go on. Um, but I think the important thing is how do they think about the structure of American power and how do they define America's vital interests and responsibilities that warrant the uh, deployment and commitment of military force. And on that score, the continuity, there's continuity again, but the continuity is in favor of American global primacy. And I don't think you can explain that, uh, you know, as some kind of sudden decision coming out of uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union or 9-11 or anything like that, that doesn't explain, you know, the 1990s in which the United States uh, foreign policy elite uh, was uh, on its high horse about how the United States had greater power than any empire in history. Uh, we decided not to significantly demobilize. We decided to take our existing alliances and security commitments uh, and expand them starting in the 1990s and continuing to the present day. And as long as we're on that course, you can have a president, you know, with a nice saw shucks attitude promising they could be even a genuinely humble person. I don't know how you become U.S. president and actually be humble, but, you know, let's just imagine it, um, you know, in you don't, structural You don't terms, think our current president is a good example of that? Mm, 
Probably not. Okay. But um, he may be more willing to admit that he's not humble than right. than others. More, more candid than, than some. Yeah. But um, I think that's the bottom line. And so I think to understand why, um, you know, we didn't start with a blank slate in the 1990s, but inherited uh, a role of primacy, we have to go back uh, to to where it came from. But I also think, it's, I think some want to say that something's different about the 1990s and they're right. They are right about that. I think that there was a coherent rationale that more or less lined up with real facts in the world uh, for American primacy in World War II and the Cold War because of the existence of uh, totalitarian powers, robust totalitarian powers, dynamic ones that inspired others or, and or conquered them as well. Um, you know, as long as that remained the case in the world, there was a compelling rationale to say it's better us than them. And it's a, it's a gloss for, for us or not necessarily for U.S. freedom and security and prosperity, but for the larger way in which the United States identifies itself in the world whenever those totalitarians advance. Since then, I think armed dominance has become something like an end unto itself. Uh, we have to keep these things going, so we got to keep these things going. And if we don't, it's chaos. It's just a sort of amorphous specter of disorder or isolationism or something um, that is the argument for how things would go if the United States pulled back. Uh, and so I think that's a, that is an important change. And it has led to... Um, uh, partly because also there's, there aren't, there haven't been powerful competitors that impose costs in the United States when it does something really bad. Um, you know, that has enabled uh, uh, more license uh, for American policymakers and the exercise of power than we saw before. And the numbers are startling. Uh, the United States has engaged far more frequently in armed interventions since the collapse of the Soviet Union than it did during the Cold War itself. Mm -hmm. And there were no few during the Cold War. Um, so, yeah, so where do you see things going from here? It seems to me, I mean, as I said, as we uh, tape this, I mean, we may, we may uh, both of us go back to our, you know, checking our, our Twitter feeds and, 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 and the, uh, the, the ballot count and find that, that actually... Uh, you know, Pennsylvania has been called or something, and, and it looks like Joe Biden is the next president. That seems likely. Um, why don't we just assume that for purposes of kind of a uh, thought experiment? Let's assume um, that that Biden is president. It seems to me you're you're already seeing a fair number of rationales in play for for uh, a, a continuation of of our you know uh, of a policy of, of kind of global hegemony. I mean, you've got, you know, terrorism is still a thing. China, of course, partly because of the pandemic, partly for other reasons, has, uh, you know, now assumes a, a much darker role in American political rhetoric. Russia does partly because of Trump, partly because of the way anti-Trumpers associate Trump with Russia. Russia has come, and, and partly, no doubt, because of Russia's behavior, and you can argue about how much of that behavior we might have uh, contributed to, but in any event, it seems to me we've got several narratives running 
that could you serve to justify a continuation of the policy whose evolution you document? What uh, let's assume a Biden presidency. Uh, what do you think the prospects are, if any, for change? The prospects look better than they have at any point in my adult lifetime. So I vaguely remember the wall coming down. So we'll, you know, take that period of time. Uh, that's not to say that they look great. If you would imagine, you know, if, if the question is, will the United States uh, cut the defense budget in half in the next four years and take actions that would accord with that? No, that's not going to happen. But there, there is, I think, a real change happening. Uh, it's been brewing since the middle of the aughts uh, as the war in Iraq began to go south. We've seen you know, two unlikely presidents of the United States, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, both have success, particularly in their primaries, by distinguishing themselves by opposing the Iraq war or claiming to oppose the Iraq war and vowing to end Middle East wars in Trump's case. Something is happening. Uh, and so and you see it in both parties, by the way. I mean, it's on the flanks of the Democratic Party and it's on the flanks of the Republican Party. And people who are running for Congress, even if they're moderates, and have to pay attention to where their voters are also sound quite different from where they might have been or similar candidates might have been a decade plus ago. So that's a shift. There's a real shift in public opinion. There's also um, shifts in the world. So one narrative that you didn't mention that points in the opposite direction has to do with climate change and pandemic disease. To my mind, these are the largest threats to the safety of the American people where they live and work. They also happen to be transnational and planetary threats. So they're threats to others too. Mm -hmm. If we take it really seriously, that that's our fundamental priority. I think that implies a very different approach to the world. You know, having military antagonisms it's not helpful when the U.S. military is itself a huge uh, contributor to climate change uh, and causes others to be insecure and put their resources into armaments and immediate survival. Uh, and the question of China is huge. So, you know, China is probably the best thing that those who want to justify American primacy for the long term can point to. Mm -hmm. Uh, partly because of, you know, legitimate objections to really bad Chinese actions of late. Um, it, it, it can kind of slot in to the, to the Axis and Soviet depiction of a totalitarian, or maybe in its case, you know, techno or crypto totalitarian power. It does not have a record of armed conquest, however, that is you know, nearly comparable to either of those powers. So that's, that's a big point, but I, you know, could, could, could change over time. On the other hand, China is also the largest contributor 
to climate change, the largest emitter of carbon dioxide in the world by far, the United States is number two. And so I think the Biden administration, the people who will be around the presumable Biden administration, uh, they do understand that climate change is an important challenge. And I hope that they would increasingly understand that, um, you know, we, we risk getting into uh, a kind of Cold War with China right now, certainly a military competition. Uh, I don't think that that's going to be helpful at all to establishing the kind of cooperation that we need uh, to innovate green technologies, to distribute them widely in the world and solve this problem on a global scale. And I should say the Democratic electorate, I mean, if you think back to the Democratic primaries, going into it, I think it was, it was an open question, you know, would the foreign policy debate such as it was uh, focus more on, you know, bad actors in the world that the United States should stand up to, like Putin, like Xi, or would it focus on ending endless war and challenges like climate change. And my reading of it is that the latter what predominated. And so yet again, you know, Joe Biden, who you would think would have been able to run on his foreign policy experience, just as Hillary Clinton had run on her foreign policy experience last time, uh, found that experience to be, if anything, a liability and had to talk about how, you know, he had learned something from, from mistakes in the past and, uh, he, Biden, for example, emphasized that uh, he had opposed the surge in Afghanistan in the Obama administration, uh, and he's vowed to end the forever war and so forth. So there are real shifts in the American public. Uh, there are shifts in the challenges that we face. Um, I agree, you know, uh, a rapid transform, a dramatic transformation of America's role in the world. That's always a hard thing to say. That said, we've seen it before. Uh, we've seen that rapid shift happen un with unforeseen circumstances. And at least now there are people who have, I think, a well-developed sense of what military restraint looks like. Um, before the fall of France, there actually really wasn't much of a sense uh, that the United States could or should become the dominant power militarily on a global scale. And there weren't really people who had written tracks about what that would look like. So we might be further, further advanced uh, in making a case for restraint today than uh, advocates of primacy were uh, back then. Okay, well, uh, uh, inshallah, the... Um... I mean, there's no shortage of these, I think, non-zero-sum problems like climate change. I mean, including, you know, the control of various kinds of armaments, some of which I think, uh, you know, including cyber weapons, weapons in space. There's all kinds of reasons that uh, a healthy future for the world counsels more in international cooperation, less war. At the same time, you do, you know, you do see how hard it seems to be to fight the establishment. I mean, as you said, both Obama and Trump came in professing to be different. Uh, Obama wound up amping up drone strikes, not getting us out of Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere. And Trump, of course, who is not a very smooth operator to begin with, maybe you can chalk it up to flat out incompetence on his part, but he's been unable you know, he, he, he really tries every once in a while to do something like, let's get <laughs> troops out of Syria. 
right. or somewhere, and he just can't fight the establishment. And and it, it, I don't think it's just incompetence. I think the establishment there 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 is powerful gravity working against anybody with those aspirations, right? No doubt about it. But let's let's break those things up and think about them. So you know, Congress can be one obstacle sometimes. But Congress can be changed. There's more void. There's now a War Powers Caucus in Congress. Uh, so we know how to influence Congress. It's not easy. We have a difficult campaign finance system. We know that. But Congress changes, and we've gotten some things through JCPOA, uh, Yemen, etc. Those look very difficult. So okay, uh, let's see. And then you've got this staffing issue, I think. It's something that President Trump ran up against when he sometimes had good impulses on Syria, uh, you know, in North Korea, et cetera. So, yeah, I think it's a wake-up call that there does need to be an infrastructure built of people who can serve. If, if you have a president, a policymaker who wants to do the right thing, uh, there does need to be genuine experts who are qualified, know how things work, uh, who can implement those vision that that vision and provide options to decision makers. So that needs work, and that's part of what the Quincy Institute and and other institutions uh, now are doing. So I think we're on the right track in that regard. And then the poli- the wider politics has to change as well. Uh, now we saw, for example. Uh, when President Obama was thinking of enforcing his red line in Syria, you know, Congress basically vetoed that. They were not going to support it. Obama went to Congress. It's clear people heard from their constituents in Congress. We don't want to do this. So, you know, there's some real uh, strong feeling in the United States. Uh, it's not well organized, I think, because at the elite level, the commentariat is really one dimensional. But that too is changing, and I think, uh, frankly, the uh, the rise of people who are kind of my age or younger uh, into positions is is going to change things a huge amount. This is uh, the the millennial and younger group have grown up with the war on terror, not with the Cold War, uh, and a lot of things that uh, sound shocking that I might say to. Uh, to an audience in um, uh, circles in Washington, D.C., sounds like common sense uh, to my peers. And so, you know, again, do I expect rapid, dramatic change in the next couple years? Of course not. But, you know, over the medium term, quite possible. Okay. Well, Hope you're right. Uh, I guess now now we can both go find out whether we have uh, a new president. Um, meanwhile, congratulations on the book, Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Um, and good luck at, at uh, Quincy and, and with all your endeavors. Thank you. A pleasure to talk. Okay. Take care.